Is there a time in your life when you remember thinking, how did I get here? And I don't just mean the, the good sort of lofty moments when you humbly thought, oh, how did I get here? I'm talking more of the not so good moments, the difficult times, the painful times when you thought, oh my, how did I get here? How, how, did, how did things spiral to this? How did that thing I said or did boomerang back on me this way? How did my health take this turn? What, how did this person do this to me? How did I get here? There are uh, several times in the book of Esther when I think it's fair to say that Esther could have asked that very question. How did I get here? Not just the ascension to queen that we're going to see this morning, but I think there's a couple of times here in chapter two when it's not difficult at all to wonder how did this happen? How did Esther get to this place? And one of the interesting things about the story and the way it's written in the book of Esther is it's not always clear. There are some things that are left for us to consider, some things that are not overtly stated. There's a lot of backstory, it feels like, that even at points is ambiguous, just different conflicting sort of elements sometimes. And as onlookers, it's really quite remarkable to see how Esther wound up where she did. And so I want to approach Esther chapter 2 today. We're going to spend most of our time in chapter 2 with that question in mind, exploring a couple of possible answers that I think have some, some wisdom to them and, and overlap in places. It's not either or sort of answers. Uh, and then finish up with really the, the overarching, unavoidable answer behind all of it. But let me start in chapter 2 and just read verse 1 just to set the scene for us. It says, Sometime later, when King Ahasuerus' rage had cooled down, he remembered Vashti, what she had done, and what was decided against her. As you're reading through the story of Esther, there's a piece of history that it's possible to miss here, and that is the gap between chapter one and chapter two. It starts with some time later, and we're thinking, well, this was after his incident with Vashti where he deposes her, but there is actually a stretch of about three years between chapter one and chapter two. And we know that because in chapter one, it describes a feast that began in the third year of King Ahasuerus' reign. And then in chapter two, when you get down to verse 16, it's dated as being in the seventh year. And some of you are thinking seven minus three is four. Pastor doesn't know math. And I'm not good at math. I acknowledge that. But chapter two, the Details that unfold in chapter two, as you see, will take a, about a year to almost 18 months to play out. And so the actual gap then between chapters one and two is two and a half to three years. And for that, we look to the secular Greek historian Herodotus to understand what was going on in the Persian Empire during that time. And that was the season of the second major assault on Greece. You remember the background, if you were here last week, we talked about this in chapter one, the feast that the king threw in chapter one, it seems like was largely lobbying for support. It was his way of demonstrating his rule and his power and his ability to lead the nation so that the Persian army would support him and follow him into finishing the work that his father Darius had failed at. 
The one military feat that Darius could not finish was conquering Greece. He got there and had some success, but ultimately was pushed back and had to retreat. And so Ahasuerus has drummed up support. And during this two and a half to three year interim is the time when he leads the Persian army and again fails against Greece. They, they, they get close, their success early on, but ultimately they are defeated. And so when you come to the beginning of chapter two, Ahasuerus is an angry king. His wrath subsiding is speaking to the fact that, that he has lost, he has followed in the footsteps of his father, his reign is somewhat in jeopardy at this place, at this point in, in, in his career. And so he is now at his palace in Susa and he is just sort of ruminating about life and thinking, in fact, about the queen that he had vanquished years earlier. And it's not entirely clear from this verse. It, it seems like as he's remembering her, we could presume maybe there was even some, some fond memories, but even in doing so, he almost seems detached when he says, uh, when it says he remembered Vashti, what she had done and what was decided against her. It, it, even in his memory of her, he's still somehow reflecting on the fact that she was wrong, that, that she was the one who denied his request, and that what was decided against her somehow leaves him out. It's sort of third person standing back and looking when indeed it was the king who banished his queen and sent her away for good. So let me read on. Verse 2. The king's personal attendants suggested, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in each province of his kingdom so that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem at the fortress of Susa. Put them under the supervision of Hegei, the king's eunuch, keeper of the women, and give them the required beauty treatments. Then the young woman who pleases the king will become queen instead of Ashti. The suggestion pleased the king, and he did accordingly. We haven't met Esther yet, but to follow the, the question that I, I gave to you at the beginning, how does Esther end up where she does? First answer, frankly, is on account of man's evil. The, the writer of Esther, there's one thing that he really wants us to see throughout the early part of the book of Esther, is the absolute power of the monarchy. The king and his officials do whatever they please, whether it's appointing surrogates to go out and gather young virgins from across the empire, or as history tells us, the annual taking of hundreds of boys to be made into eunuchs to serve the king in both cases. It is a lifetime sentence to loneliness and not being able to be married, all because this is what the king has determined. This is what you will do to serve him. And so what they suggest here is pure evil. The king is sad and he is lonely and his advisors seem to come up with this way that will please him, that will make him happy. Supply him with an endless run of young women from whom he would have his pick of a new queen. Traditionally, the Persian king who was going to marry a queen would marry someone from aristocracy, someone from a higher family, maybe the daughter of one of his advisors, um, somebody with some note in terms of at least the, the family status. But, but this, frankly, is taking all the immorality of the bachelor, sorry for those of you, but taking all of that and sinking it to new lows. 
So look at verse 12, down in verse 12, Esther 2, verse 12. During the year before each young woman's turn to go to King Ahasuerus, the harem regulation required her to receive beauty treatments with oil of myrrh for six months and then with perfumes and cosmetics for another six months. When the young woman would go to the king, she was given whatever she requested to take with her from the harem to the palace. She would go in the evening and in the morning she would return to a second harem under the supervision of the king's eunuch, Shajgaz, one of those names you leave off the list when you're looking at baby names, who is the keeper of the concubines. She never went to the king again unless he desired her and summoned her by name. The story of Esther is fascinating. And, and we know, if you've read it before, we know where it's leading to. But we ought not overlook this, that essentially beautiful young virgins from across the king's empire are gathered, does not speak of being willing, but gathered, put through a year of preparation for one night with the king. Come the morning, they are cast off as concubines where they will spend a cared for but rather lonely existence unless called again by the king. They are not going to marry. They're going to largely live in isolation. Not surprising, the ungodly Gentile king thinks this is a marvelous idea and gives it his approval. There's no indication of pausing to consider the justice of it, the morality of it, any sort of conscience moment here. It is simply, this is what the king can do. One writer puts it this way, everyone, whether male or female, was at the disposal of the king's personal whims. So how did Esther end up where she did? The first answer is on account of man's evil. Second answer that I want to propose to you this morning as we'll read on here from chapter 2 is also on account of choices, man's choices. Some poor, some questionable, at least we could say. Uh, verse 5. In the fortress of Susa, there was a Jewish man named Mordecai, son of Jair, son of Shemai, son of Kish, a Benjamite. Kish had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the other captives when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon took King Jeconiah of Judah into exile. Mordecai was the legal guardian of his cousin Hadassah, that is, Esther, because she had no father or mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was extremely good-looking. When her father and mother died... Mordecai had adopted her as his own daughter. All right, for the first time in our story, we're finally introduced to the, the stars of the story, if you will, Mordecai and his cousin Esther. So let's see what we can glean about them from the text. First thing that should jump off the page at you in verse 5 is the phrase, there was a Jewish man in the fortress of Susa. That's sort of the point that the author wants us to stop and go, wait, whoa, <laughs> in the midst of all that we've just been reading about the king of the Persian empire, he suddenly pulls us up short and says, there was a Jew right there in the vicinity, right there in the area of where the, the king resided, where his winter residence was, a Jew by the name of Mordecai, descendant of the tribe of Benjamin, so that would relate him all the way back to Israel's first king, Saul, and we'll see the significance of that connection when we get into chapter 3 and find out Mordecai's, uh, who becomes Mordecai's archenemy and, and his ancestry, Haman the uh, Agagite. But the writer of Esther then in verse 6 also just reminds us of a little bit of history here when he explains that, that 
Uh, Mordecai was a descendant ultimately of Kish, and Kish is one of the Jews who was taken into exile from Jerusalem. So a century prior to the, the time these events are unfolding is when the Babylonians march into Judah, destroy Jerusalem, take the people captive, and take them back into Babylon. I gave you the timeline just so that you would see it. They are kept in Babylon, um, held in Gentile cities, and ultimately God's appointed savior, if you will, is the Persian king Cyrus, who defeats the Babylonians, and then about a year after his defeating of the Babylonians, decrees and says that people may return to their homelands. The Jews, in particular, may now go back to Judah and to Jerusalem. At this point in time, that, that's, that, that's about 50 years before where we are now. So when you get to Mordecai and Esther, there's been a couple of generations by this time that have been able to go back to Judah. Judah is not in great straits at this point. Jerusalem is still without walls. It is still a city that is slowly being rebuilt. It's going to still be from this point of Esther and Mordecai, still another 40 years before we get to, roughly 40 years, till we get to Nehemiah and then the rebuilding of the walls. So Jerusalem is not a, a great place at this point, but, but we should flag this. Mordecai and Esther could have been back in Judah, but they were not. And so when we ask the question, on Esther's behalf, how did I get here? Part of the answer is because 100 years ago, Gentiles took your ancestors and forcibly removed them and moved them into other lands and spread them throughout the empire. But the fact that they were still in Persia generations after Jews were allowed to return would ultimately suggest that at some level, this is a decision by Mordecai. At some point, there is a willingness to stay where they are and to not go back. And so it's some matter of choice. Life in Susa, which is the, the winter residence of the king of Persia, is probably better than life in a city that is being raised from the ashes of its own destruction. The known is presumably better than the unknown and certainly better than a 750-mile journey from Susa to Jerusalem to find out. And so at some level... I don't think it's a stretch to say, even though the author doesn't, that Mordecai found some comfort in living in Susa, even though there were threats, potential threats. The reason that's important to us is because if you go back to when Jews are first taken into captivity, it's Jeremiah, the prophet, who is speaking to them. And Jeremiah says to his fellow Jews, as they are going to be taken into captivity in Babylon, listen, this is punishment from God. This is on account of your sin that you are being put into exile, and therefore you're going to be here for a while. And so while you're in these foreign lands, you might as well settle down, plant some crops, and raise your families, because this is where God has taken you. But that's not the end of the story. God then goes on to say that after decades of Jewish captivity, that he would come and he would deliver his people. In fact, Jeremiah 29 gives us a very familiar verse that often gets used out of context, but we understand it here now. It's the familiar words from Jeremiah that say, God, God says, I know the plans I have for you, plans for your well-being, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. The original context is speaking to the Jewish exiles being taken into Babylon. This is not the end of the story. There is still a future hope. I will deliver you. And so to the Jewish people, God gives them then a very specific promise in Jeremiah 29, 14. I will restore your fortunes 
and gather you from all the nations and places where I banished you. This is the Lord's declaration. I will restore you to the place from which I deported you. God's intent was always to deliver his people from out of exile in Babylon. God was not intending to leave them there and have the the line just assimilate in with the Gentiles, but rather it was to bring them back to Judah, to rebuild Jerusalem, to construct the temple as the place of worship where Jews would come again and meet God and worship and sacrifice to Yahweh. And so for reasons that, again, the author of Esther doesn't explain, Mordecai was a Jew who remained in Persia. Verse 7 of chapter 2, first time we are now introduced to Esther. We're told she was orphaned by the loss of her mother and father, and that Mordecai, a relative, literally says took her. The CSB says adopted her, but the language is took her, and that's important. We'll hit that in just a moment, the idea of taken or took. Um, but the, the, the idea is Mordecai takes her now to care for her, to be a father to her, and the description that's simply given is she is very beautiful. Verse 7 also talks about her name. It describes that her name, Esther, uh, Esther would not have been her Hebrew name, that was Hadassah. Hadassah was uh, a name that meant a myrtle, which is the little small tree, beautiful blooms, very fragrant, um, ends up becoming a name that's very fitting to someone who is described for her beauty. But the name Esther would seem to be a Hebrew way of transliterating what was a name that in the the Gentile language, in the, the Persian name, Ishtar. It's really interesting that Esther's the one that we get two names for. We don't get that for any others in this book, but it really does seem to at least hint at the fact that in some sense we're, we're going to see two people in this book. The, the young, unknown virgin who has no claims to really anything in society, and then the queen who is able to actually influence the course of direction of her people as she speaks to the king. There's there's almost two identities with this Esther, but the names Mordecai and Esther both have been linked to Babylonian gods. Marduk, primary male deity, Ishtar, the goddess of love and war. Interesting combination there. Book of Esther doesn't try to read into the names, and yet there seems to be at least some significance in all of that. It, it certainly seems reasonable, the, 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 the joining of their identities to these Gentile names in terms of Esther's name relating to goddess of love and war. We're going to see both of those elements in the story. She is loved more than all of the other young women by Ahasuerus. That's the one that he falls in love with and, and, and makes his queen. But then also she is the one who later will go to the king and will ask for permission for her people to not just defend themselves, but to go on the attack and war against those who would attack them, who would try to destroy the Jews. And so there's a little bit of that love and war in terms of what she will do later in life. But I I think the thing that it's worth at least pointing out in relation to the names, and some commentators will, will note this in particular, is that even though it's not said here specifically, it's possible that the writer of Esther is at least wanting to just reveal to us a little bit of the secular nature of life for Jews living outside of Jerusalem, who are not involved actively in the worship and the feasts and the sacrifice in terms of Jerusalem as prescribed. They have not gone back, as God had said in Jeremiah 29, he would regather them to Judah, but they seem to be content 
living fairly secular lives in the midst of pagan lands that are far from where the presence of Yahweh would be. It's a bit of conjecture, conjecture but I think it, it also still reinforces the fact that at least part of why Esther is here is because of a choice that was made by Mordecai that could, I think, at best, based on what we know from Jeremiah, not a stretch to say that it might not have been the wisest of choices. Because the reality is, as we're going to see, there are threats to Jews. It's not easy being a Jew in these lands. And so the staying out in Persia at least raises some questions. All right, let me read on. Verse 8. Esther 2, verse 8. When the king's command and edict became public knowledge, and when many young women were gathered at the fortress of Susa under Hegei's supervision, Esther was taken to the palace into the supervision of Hegei, keeper of the women. The young woman pleased him and gained his favor so that he accelerated the process of the beauty treatments and the special diet that she received. He assigned seven hand-picked female servants to her from the palace and transferred her and her servants to the harem's best quarters. Esther did not reveal her ethnicity or her family background because Mordecai had ordered her not to make them known. And every day, Mordecai took a walk in front of the harem's courtyard to learn how Esther was doing and to see what was happening to her. It's an interesting point there in verse 10 that she does not reveal her ethnicity or her family background by orders of Mordecai, which tells us that at minimum... Mordecai understood that her being a Jew in Persia, in Susa, around the king, was more liability than strength. It might not have necessarily gotten her doomed, but it wasn't going to help her either. And in worst case scenario, it might be played against her in some way. So again, the author doesn't elaborate on Mordecai's instruction to her to not reveal her ethnicity, doesn't pass judgment as to whether it's an act of compromise. One could certainly argue that in Mordecai's mind, he's doing everything he can to protect her. And, and, and that seems to be evidenced by the fact that daily he is concerned about her, he is checking on her well-being. But again, it, it, it points to that question of was it wise to be in Persia at that point in time? But there's really a, a recurring theme here that the author wants us to see, and I want to make sure that we catch. Esther, we've, we've only met her briefly already, and Esther is already being seen very clearly as a pawn in this plot. She is being moved and taken. It, 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 the, the verbs that describe her activities are all passive verbs. In verb seven, in verse seven, I should say, Mordecai took her as his daughter, adopted her, but Mordecai took her. Verse eight, she was among the young women who were gathered. The word could also be collected by the, the appointed agents of the king. And then again in verse eight, she was taken to the palace. She was transferred there with the others. They're all passive verbs meant to underscore the fact that Esther did not have control over her own destiny at this point. Mordecai is the one that probably made the decision that had her in Persia. The king's agents gathered her up with other young women. One of the servants took her to the palace for special treatments. And then there's one more taken yet to come, and that's dropped down to verse 15. Esther was the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had adopted her as his own daughter. When her turn came to go to the king, she did not ask for anything except what Hegei, the king's eunuch, keeper of the women, suggested. Esther gained favor in the eyes of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Ahasuerus in the palace in the 10th month, the month Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. 
The king loved Esther more than all the other women. She won more favor and approval from him than did any of the other virgins. He placed the royal crown on her head and made her queen in place of Vashti. The king held a great banquet for all his officials and staff. It was Esther's banquet. He freed his provinces from tax payments and gave gifts worthy of the king's bounty. The king who started the chapter is angry now is very, very happy. When verse 16 says that Esther was taken to the palace for that night with the king, it is not clear, it's not stated whether she is willing, unwilling, or ambivalent. On the one hand, you could read into the not taking of anything when she's offered, is there anything that you want to take with you? And she says nothing could be a sign of her disdain or her indifference to the whole sordid process at this point. It could also be a level of trust in the one who had gotten her, the servant who had sort of moved her to this point. Commentator Karen Jobes says that what happened to Esther may have violated every conviction and moral principle within her and caused her to wonder how God could let such a horrible thing happen to her. Or Esther may have been swept off her feet by the attention of the most powerful man in the empire and thought it was the best thing to happen to her. We don't know. There may have been unwise choices that had Esther in Persia at this point in time when this edict came down. There's certainly evil being done by the king and by his officers. Perhaps one could argue Esther could put up a fight and perhaps be harmed or lose her life in the process. All of that is left unsaid. So that what we are given is really a, a main point to understand that, that the point that's at least unequivocal is that what happened to Esther was almost completely out of her control. She was where she was mostly by the actions of other people. Now, as stories go, if we were to sort of sum up to this point and, and forget where this is story, where this story is going and, and, and forget that it's in the canon of scripture at this point, just in terms of story, we might feel contempt, disgust at the king. We might feel a sense of rejoicing that at least she's been made queen of the worst possible story that at least at this point in the story, the best possible outcome has come from these painful circumstances. At least she has been elevated to queen. But as we often have to do as we're working our way through the book of Esther, we, we do have to kind of think ahead to the end of the story because it, it doesn't end here. It doesn't end with, and Esther became queen and lived happily ever after the end. In fact, if you scroll down or look down and your Bible has headings right over chapter three, the heading probably says something to the effect of the plot against the Jews or the plot to kill the Jews. For all that's been uncertain up to this point, we are going to, in a very short time, and we'll read it next week, see an official who goes to King Ahasuerus and has his ear and successfully lobbies for a royal edict to decree that every Jew in every part of the province, uh, every province of the Persian Empire, as far as the Persian Empire has reached, that every Jew in that should be destroyed. That, that this edict is declaring ultimately that the empire should flow with the blood of murdered Jews. And so for whatever it might have seemed up until this point that we're, we're getting into with this sort of fascinating, intriguing story, we should not miss this. The book of Esther 
shows us the world doing the bidding of Satan to try to destroy God's covenant people through which he has promised to bring salvation to the nations. That this is another extreme example of Genesis 3.15 being lived out, that darkness is trying to overcome light, that God's very promises to save a people are being put to the test, and that at the center of this story is this question of what will happen. And the book of Esther shows us that in spite of and even through man's evil, and in spite of and even through poor or at best unwise choices, God still brings about the fulfillment of his promises. That in spite of and even through these things, God is at work and his purposes will not be frustrated. For all that is ambiguous in this story and downright wrong, the will of God will be victorious. God removes one queen he replaces her with the most unlikely of candidates to become queen, all to ensure that his chosen people would not be destroyed and his promise of blessing to the nations through the line of Abraham would be preserved. They would be saved at some level because God worked to keep a Jewish man and his adopted daughter right there in Susa, right there in the vicinity of the king's palace. God was at work in that. And God ultimately uses a terrible king. Ahasuerus has not only failed in military, but not long after the book of Esther, the events in Esther close, Ahasuerus will be assassinated, at least mostly by people who surround him, and at least in part because of some of the immorality he was involved in with wives of some of the people around him. And so this is a terrible guy on virtually every level with very little redeeming quality that we can find, if any. And yet, God works through Ahasuerus to fulfill his purposes. God is continuing to accomplish his plan, and it will still stand. So, friends, some of you are in circumstances where you are saying, how did I get here? I, I, am, I am weary of where I am. You, you may have gone through or are going through circumstances that are brought about by somebody else's evil. You may, are, you may be in or going through circumstances that are somehow the result of unwise choices you've made or sin that you've committed. You may be walking in circumstances right now where you, you made a decision at some point back there and it was sort of ambiguous and you weren't sure what was right or wrong and now you found out that it really didn't work out well and you're reaping consequences and you're saying, how am I here? Or you may even be at a point where you're, you're pondering what to do and a decision that you need to make and you're wary of making the wrong choice. The story of Esther does not affirm evil. God is the judge of evil. He is the righteous judge of evildoers. And it is not a license to make foolish choices or even just to, to throw your hands up and say, uh, it's that little providence. It's all providence. It, I'm, just a, I'm just on the, the roller coaster of providence and it's going to take me where it takes me and 
I don't have any role here and I'm just going to be along for the ride wherever it goes. Listen, Esther is, first of all, one book in the canon of Scripture. And we ought not isolate it because Scripture is full of teaching us how to respond to suffering, how to grow through suffering, how to be like Christ in suffering. It's full of wisdom on, on how we are to follow after Christ and, and wisdom for decisions and repenting of sin and seeking God's will and clinging to his truth. Scripture is replete with instructions about that. So there is so much more beyond Esther. But, friends, Esther holds this profound lesson in it about the unshakable nature of God's plans. When man is evil, when Satan is scheming, even when we are making wrong and foolish choices, none of those can derail what God intends to do. Our, our foolishness, our sin, the sin of another, your, your worst moment does not eclipse God's promises in your life. And that's what Esther is here to tell us, that even another person's evil cannot stop God's good. In a world where those with power will often use it for their own gain, and sometimes even to the hurt of others, we who are trusting in Jesus Christ have a king who sacrificed himself for us to redeem and save us to give us abundant life. I have come that they might have life and life more abundant. We have a king who divested himself of all of the privileges of kingship in order to come and be a servant and give his life for sinners so that he could take a people to himself, wash them, purify them, and make them his what? His bride that he would bring to himself. You talk about the the complete contrast to, to Ahasuerus and, and all of the beauty preparations for his good pleasure. God, for his pleasure in seeing us in his righteousness, washes us and draws us to himself. So when you come to that place of wondering, how did I get here? How did things turn against me in, in this manner. And, and when Satan is tempting you to despair and to convince you that it is hopeless, that, that whatever is left is hopeless or that no good can come of it, that's when Esther comes, should come to mind. Remember Esther. And, and, and remember that she was taken by man, ultimately not in control of much of what's going on, and yet through it all, it is serving to fulfill God's good will for his glory and for the good of his people. I'll just finish with one short passage. A little later in the Old Testament, the prophet Micah, time of decline, spiritual decline, time of immorality in Israel. Micah says this in Micah chapter 7. But I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Do not rejoice over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will stand up. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Because I have sinned against him, I must endure the Lord's fury until he champions my cause and establishes justice for me. He will bring me into the light. I will see his salvation. Friends, that is what we have in Christ. Even when he is chastening us for our sin or raising us up from blows inflicted by another person, even then our Savior is at work in transforming us to become more like 
him, to experience his righteousness, to see his light, to enjoy his salvation. And so it's not just a, an issue of how did I get here, but, but even in those moments of when I'm here and I'm, I'm, I'm really tempted as to what I need to do now to get out of here and I want to start taking control of things, I want to start making things go my way because I'm, I'm tired of being here, even then we're reminded that our God is the one who who champions even his people, even after chastising them. He is the one who raises up, and, and it is his light, his salvation that we are to walk in. And so how I got here could be a host of factors, some of which out of my control, but fully within the good and kind and sovereign providence of the king whose purposes will stand. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you, you're the creator, you are the one who has given us life and breath, we owe our existence to you, Lord Jesus, you are the, you are the great and coming king, Lord Jesus, we thank you, we thank you that in you, in your sovereign rule, we find ourselves in your care, and that is a good place. Lord, I'm, I'm just praying for brothers and sisters who, who are wrestling with that, that very how I got here sort of question and sense of tremendous defeat and hopelessness and despair even. And I pray, Lord, that they would see that at work in that, in that despair is often the, the enemy who is accusing and who is trying very hard to make the case that there is no hope and is no future. But Lord Jesus, we believe that in you, that we are loved with an everlasting love, that the work that you began in us, you are faithful to see to completion in your presence to experience your glory forevermore. And so I pray that as we continue to ponder this book of Esther and we see your hand working in ways that seem hidden to the observing eye, that we would be reminded of your hand at work in our circumstances that seem hard, that seem out of control at times. Lord, humble us to be grateful that even when we realize that we are not in control, that we recognize that you are, that there's not a circumstance that befalls us that has not been ordained in some way by you. And so help us to be thankful for that and to continue to trust you. I pray, Lord, if there's anyone listening here this morning that does not know Jesus Christ as Savior, that they would find in Jesus this king who gave himself on the cross, who suffered and died in the place of sinners so that those who run to him, those who are trusting in him would have abundant life. They would have a hope that transcends this life. And Lord, may we as a, as a people, may we speak these words of encouragement to one another. May we draw from scripture and from your spirit the, the confidence to, 
to brag about our king and to speak of how he will do these things. He will fulfill his word. He will keep his promises. We know this to be true. Help us to live in the good of it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.